the extra little bit. Now, don't read the whole thing. Come on, just put it down, put it down. The uh, board last year decided in setting aside these evening periods for several of us to address you um, to deal with some issues that we hope were of interest and help to families. And uh, my responsibility this evening in the second of these messages is to talk about parent and child relationships and especially to focus in on that period in the growth of a family when those relationships often become strained uh, at the time when teens are beginning to express their independence and uh, the relationship with their parents often changes radically. There are two verses at the beginning of your sheet, one from Malachi and one from Matthew. And they're the uh, verses that I want to impress upon your thinking tonight uh, not a lot of exposition of a lot of passages of Scripture, but, you know, sometimes the best way we can use Scripture is to take a biblical idea and let that become a paradigm for understanding and interpreting our experience in this world. So the first verse is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Here the prophet is speaking of the coming day when Messiah will be heralded by a revived Elijah. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. The second pair of verses comes from Matthew, the 10th chapter, verses 21 and 22. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Two verses that on the surface of them seem to contradict one another as they express the impact of the coming Messiah upon families and upon the relationship between parents and children in particular. But not really contradictory. Because, you see, as we bring these two passages of Scripture together, what are they telling us? On the one hand, they're telling us that some families are disrupted quite apart from faith. That is, parents are at odds with children and children at odds with parents far, beyond, or far before they're ever exposed to the Gospel. And in those instances, parent-child relationships will be reunited and restored by the coming of faith in Jesus Christ. On the other hand, there are families which are united and perfectly happy and content apart from faith. The parents get along well with the children and the children with the parents. And in those instances, that relationship will be disrupted and alienated by the intrusion of the Christian faith into such a family. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. Putting together through the faith, tearing apart through the faith, and particularly those relationships between parents and children. You have all seen these kinds of things happen. Some of your own families tonight are experiencing the tearing 
or the rebuilding of these relationships. What I want to do tonight, sort of in the uh, spirit of the Apostle Paul who told the Athenians what some of their own poets had said, is to use some of the popular songs from our culture over the last 30 years or so to try and help us understand the dynamics of this tension. Now, maybe that's a, a work of supererogation. Maybe you all understand how these relationships get strained and finally fall apart. Indulge me anyway. I hope these songs will not only be easy for the children to listen to, and so we won't fall asleep, but will also strike a responsive chord. And I mean that pun intentionally because some of these songs are written by insightful, desperately insightful people who have no answer, but who know the problem very, very well. How does God's Word and the hope that is rooted in His promises to our families open the door to true reconciliation and restoration in relationships between parents and children? Let's just pray and ask God's blessing on our study. Lord, this is a little unorthodox for Orthodox Presbyterians, but we look for you who speak with power and clarity even through the donkeys of this age to speak your truth to us from the Word. Burn those verses from Malachi and Matthew into our consciences and help us to understand your goodness and severity as we, as children, continue our relationship with our parents and as parents seek to continue to be fruitful in our relationships to our children. We cannot help ourselves, O Lord. Each one of us could confess failure in this area again and again and again. But you are gracious, and we believe your promise is true. And so grant us your mercies, even to instruct us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start back before the deluge, which was the 1960s, to try and uh, give us some point of reference. Now, uh, some of you will remember the Donna Reed show. Remember? Okay, all right. Oh, well, the son in the Donna Reed show was a man by the name, uh, a boy, now a man, by the name of Paul Peterson, who had one hit record. And that hit record was called My Dad. Still, they trotted out on Father's Day on oldies request programs around the Southland. It's a sentimental song. It's an idealistic song. Probably Paul didn't believe what he was singing when he sang it, but it's interesting from this standpoint. It got on the top 40. It was still possible to express in our culture a sentimental, idealistic view of a son's respect and reverence for his father. My dad, now here is a man.
Now imagine a song like that being written today and you can get a feel for how far American culture has come in 30 years. Couldn't happen. Couldn't hit the top 40 chart today, except as a quaint sort of piece of ancient American history. But that's the way at least some boys felt about their dads back in the days of the Donna Reed show. Other boys wrestled with the question about growing up. And they not only were asked by their parents and their peers, what are you going to be when you grow up? What do you want to do for a living? But they also, probably in the secret of their own heart, asked those questions about the changes that would take place. What would they be like when they grew up to be a man? And the Beach Boys in 1964 gave expression to that in their song with that title, speculating about growing up. What will it be like when I'm the dad and when I have my own sons and I make my own decisions and rule my own life? Will I joke around and still dig those sounds? Yes! <laughs> and people will call you strange. <laughs> but Alan and I agree, they don't write them like that anymore either, do they? <laughs> well, what was Dad doing all this time? Well, Dad was taking care of business, of course. The father's besetting sin, then like now, and I suppose this hasn't changed all that much, is being too busy to really give the kind of, ah, we've invented a phrase for it, quality time to their sons and daughters. Busy about their careers, busy about putting food on the table, busy about getting the kids to the doctor's office for necessary attention. And Harry Chapin, in 1974, gave really classic, popular expression to that kind of 
problem of neglect arising out of busyness in his song, uh, The Cats in the Cradle. An ironic twist, as the uh, chorus keeps saying, when I grow up, I'll be just like you, Dad. And, of course, the son does grow up to be just like the dad, much to the dad's disappointment. The Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. Well, there you have the basic elements in the equation. 
sons admiring and aspiring to be like their father, but filled with lots of questions about what it's going to be like. And fathers, on the one hand, wanting to teach and wanting to lead, but allowing themselves to be drawn away again and again and again, and feeling guilty for failing to be the kind of leaders that they ought to be. Well, those aren't quite the only cultural picture or parts in the cultural mix. There's one more. Because something new arose, I think anyway, in the 60s and the time that followed. And that's the insertion of a kind of mediatorial voice. Now there's going to be someone else that will become the surrogate parent for the child and do the teaching and instill the values and give direction and purpose to the life of those young people and at the same time will become the voice of the young people to the parent, criticizing and analyzing and denouncing the parental lifestyle, the parental values. And I'm speaking about the rock singer or the rock group. That becomes the mediatorial voice that speaks for both sides, the new parent and the new child. Now, when that mediatorial voice first began to arise in the 60s, it was a fairly sweet, even harmonic voice. And it gave advice like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young did in their song, Teach Your Children.
Now that's a nice sweet song when you can sing along with, strike the harmony, and realize that your parents do love you. They don't know what they're doing either, but don't hold that against them. Give them a chance. They've taught you all they know. Now it's time for you to teach them what you know. And that was the beginning of that voice. Again, fairly benign, so it seemed at the time, but becomes more intense and more strident as the music develops or devolves over the next few years. The legacy of the 60s and 70s was a more overt tension expressed between parents and children, not only in songs, but in relationships. Oh, there'd always been problems with attitudes, always problems with angry words and disruptive actions, but now it began to be the sort of model. If you didn't have that kind of a falling out with your dad, a son wasn't really expressing his manhood. And so there was a kind of an expectation that that sort of tension would develop and that there would be that anger, that anger, disrespect, ingratitude, and on the part of the parents, an incomprehension. Now, uh, those of you who are my age, uh, now your dads, some of you, can you ever remember having a conversation with your father and after it was over, it seemed like you were talking right past one another? Nothing you said seemed to impact on him and nothing he said seemed to make much of an impact on you. How about your teens now? Have you ever had a conversation like that with your father? It was just like you're talking two different languages. Well, Cat Stevens captured that kind of a problem conversation in his song, Father and Son, where the father's making his point and the son's making his point, but nobody's listening.
away, 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 stay, stay, stay. Both people talking, nobody listening. In Independence Day, Bruce Springsteen's song from 1979, the separation was more or less complete. Although the son does have to admit, as he does, we were just too much of the same kind. Both the father and the son are children of Adam, and they both share his sinful character qualities, and as they come up against one another, there cannot help but be disruption and distress. This excerpt just plays the first and last verses of this, by the way. It cuts the middle out, so... Nobody likes Springsteen's message either. Maybe the song that sums up this leaving problem most poignantly is the one from the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album from 1967, a whole album about relationships and how they can go wrong. Uh, This song is as heartbreaking as today to listen to as it was 25 years ago. But it does show us, in our culture's view at least, what, uh, what was going on in the child's mind and what was going on in the parent's mind. The child really wants to be free, 
to exert their independence. They want to have fun. And they're convinced, for whatever reason, that they can't be free and have fun and continue to be tied to their parents. And so they have to leave. The parents, for their part, really believe that they've done the very best they could. And they're heartbroken that it turned out not to be enough. So there's nothing to say. Just leave a note and leave.
So if you were the judge, whose side would you be on? Was the girl right? Was mom and dad right? Were they both right? Were they both wrong? Well, those kind of postmortems aren't very helpful because she's gone anyway. Well, that mediatorial voice I spoke to you about has come a long way between uh, 1970 and 1990. And this next excerpt isn't part of an album lyric. It's uh, uh, an introduction to an album. But it struck me that it expresses the kind of mediatorial voice now that our young people, or many of them listening to, comes from uh, Jane Addiction's album that was loaned to me by a friend. We have more influence over your children than you do, but we love your children. Most of you love them too very much. So far they agree with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. You want what's best for them. Consider them when planning the future, right? Oh, Mother, Father, your blindness to our most blessed gift nature leaves us with the overwhelming task of correcting your utter mess. It also proves that you are no judge of art nor of beauty. We learn from you how to become ideal adults. There, is sub there are subjects you've passed over, or maybe they are too painful to speak about. Do you have children? Do you see yourself in them? Do they do whatever you tell them to, or do they question authority? Do you take the time to explain things to them, or do you blame the rest of the world for their mistakes? Mothers and fathers, grandmothers and fathers, great-grandmothers and fathers, great-great-grandmothers and fathers, you are responsible for more destruction done to the planet in the last 100 years than in all of mankind's history combined. You've invented weapons capable of destroying every form of wild animal and vegetation. I am not sure what condition the world we are inheriting is really in. I just have a fear of smokestacks, and I don't trust the men who feed their flames. There is an invisible force, the same one you have heard faintly buzzing all your life. This time it buzzes much louder. I myself have felt its pain. When I looked down at the spot where it hurt, I saw a very small mosquito, a bug so old it was known to Confucius as the intellectual mosquito. He sucks off you and he sucks off me. Sometimes to realize you were well, you were well someone must come along and hurt you. I have grown to become proud of myself. I have aligned with all those who have been stung by suppression. As heirs to this planet, we must maintain, honor, and enjoy the gift of freedom, a cause to validate everyone's life indeed. Now, if you're an adult, you're going to ask the question, what gives this rock group the right to give advice? But if you're a teenager, you probably won't ask that question. You'll just believe what the mediatorial voice says to you. And if the mediatorial voice in a spirit of proud self-confidence is ready to indict a hundred years of human history that they probably didn't even study in school, it would be like me trying to advise Michael Jordan on the art of basketball playing and dare to tell him that he didn't know how to do it right. Now you Bulls fans would rightly tell me I was off my rocker. But if your parents tell you that Jane's addiction is off its rocker, you're offended. Oh, I doubt, how dare you strike at the voice of my authority? 
You see, there is a voice there, a prophetic voice, calling for the children to leave because the parents have messed up, and the grandparents, and the great-grandparents for good measure. The sad thing is that young people give such an easy ear to a voice that lacks any credibility whatsoever. I'm glad they wrote the introduction to the album because the, uh, the lyrics are quite incomprehensible. And I don't mean that just because I'm old. I mean it because they're really incomprehensible. So what, what happens in light of that kind of separation? Teens don't have a corner on the market of selfishness, a consuming selfishness. Parents have the very same Adamic problem. And Randy Newman wrote a song in his last album that uh, ought to tear a parent's guts out if he pays attention to it. Uh, if you know of Randy Newman, he doesn't get a lot of airplay. Uh, the one song I ever heard on pop radio was Short People, uh, which most people didn't understand. <laughs> they thought he really didn't like short people. But Randy Newman is a satiric songwriter. He's poked fun at everything from rednecks to New York liberal Jews to everybody in between. But in a piece of surprising self-indictment, in the closing song on his last album, Land of Dreams, he turns his satire on himself and he exposes the empty, self-serving excuses of a father who abandons his family. That two years after Randy Newman abandoned his wife and his family. And then he writes this song, I want you to hurt like I do.
Well, there you have the fruit of 25 years. Is the most absolute, life-dominating concept that a person can have. And that leads to faithlessness. It leads to destruction. It leads to tears. Now, can I talk honestly with those of you who are parents tonight, as one myself? You've thought about that, haven't you? Just wash your hands of the whole thing and walk. You dads. I didn't want to be a father. I don't want the responsibility of a family. I want out of here. Maybe you didn't walk, but you thought about it. Leaving's not the only way you can go. Some of you maybe have found that that role that Raleigh was talking about last night of being the model and institutor of love in your family was just more than you bargained for. And you stopped doing it. You didn't leave the home, but you left the relationship. And your children couldn't find in you that example, that source of love. Maybe the discipline of your children in the face of their opposition and their arguments and their pouting got too tough. And so you stopped working on it. Maybe you found somebody else you loved better. Somebody else's children that you liked to give yourself to more. You see, Randy Newman has a word for us. We cannot live like our own satisfaction and our own pain is the most important thing in life. Or we will raise children who will forsake us. And rightly so. And some of you kids that are here today know what it's like to have somebody take a hike and you're still dealing with the pain of someone who abandoned you and all they had to say by way of comfort was well son daughter i just want you to hurt like i do i'm going to get mine and i hope you can get yours serious words serious thoughts what does the world have to offer by way of a solution well, I listen to a lot of music, and I can only find our culture giving us a couple of rays of hope unless you just are happy that parents and children go down separate roads and never see or speak or think about one another again. Uh, on the one hand, children do grow up. Sometimes they get over their anger. They experience some letdowns of their own. Maybe they become parents and find out it wasn't all as easy as they thought it was in the first place. And so they emerge from the crisis sadder but wiser, but really not able to do much more about it. Springsteen's song, Walk Like a Man, sort of reaches towards that solution. Sad experience being the teacher.
or maybe it's the nostalgic ambiguities of lost dreams in Judy Collins' My Father.
Did the father fulfill his promise? Or does she just remember that he really hoped he would, and that's as good as having accomplished it? Well, if you can hang with me just for a few more minutes, one more excerpt, and then we'll wrap this up. And that's a remarkable song, another one by Bruce Springsteen. Um, I'm not only a fan of the boss, but uh, he writes some amazing lyrics, and uh, maybe none as amazing as the lyrics for a non-believer in a song like My Father's House off the Nebraska album from 1982. And I set that over against the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15:11 through 24, and I've asked you to use that passage for your family devotions uh, in the morning to kind of round out our discussion tonight. I'm banking on the fact that you know the story and that the burden of Jesus' message in that parable is clear enough to you. And with that in mind, listen to what Springsteen says about that uh, sad, sad fact that you can't go home again.
Sorry, son, no one by that name lives here anymore. There's no reconciliation because there's no atonement. Kids, as fathers and mothers, we have to confess to you that there are things which we do in our relationships to you that cannot be overlooked, cannot be ignored. They cannot be taken away unless there is an atonement and there is ingratitude and selfishness and rebellion in your hearts that cannot be taken away or overlooked unless there's an atonement. Now this has been a bleak picture, but the good news is there is an atonement. And like Raleigh reminded us last night, the solution to the parent-child relationship is not to try harder to be a good mom or dad or to try harder to be a good son or daughter but first and foremost to sue for mercy before the Lord Jesus Christ who provided that atonement that if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then the barriers can come down and you can safely set aside your pride and you don't have to defend your selfishness, and you don't have to have it your own way, whether you're a parent or a child, you can be reconciled to one another because you've been reconciled to God through the blood of the cross. Well, we've seen a lot of things. Son's admiration, a father's neglect, a conflict of values compounded by ingratitude and disrespect, a proud self-righteousness of years, 
the short-sighted pride of youth, growth and experience that only bring the sad lesson to both that you can't go home again. What's God's answer? Well, a godly father and mother can warrant their children's respect, giving themselves to their children more than the things that they can earn. God's word in the hearts of parents and children can assure a concurrence of values. God's grace can humble your pride, your self-righteousness, and your thanklessness, whether you're young or old. Years for you can bring much more than experience and bitter regret. In the spirit, they can bring wisdom in the fear of the Lord. Turning the hearts of the fathers and the hearts of the sons toward each other and homeward toward God. The church has no grandchildren. Many evangelicals take that as an article of faith, that you cannot pass the faith from one generation to another. Every generation has to start over again from scratch. We who embrace the covenant don't believe that, but faced with the hard knocks of day-by-day family living, sometimes we resign ourselves to a kind of a cynical, practical adoption of that principle. But remember the promise of God that closes Psalm 128. You will see your children's children and peace upon Israel. Not your children's children consigned to hell forever in their rebellious unbelief, but your children's children partaking of the promised peace of God's people. In 1991, can we dare to believe that in our families? With so many broken homes in our own churches, can we trust the promise of God? That God can and will restore and rebuild the broken walls and the broken homes? Yes, we can believe it. And by the grace of God, there is other evidence, and you have seen it, and I have seen it. And we rejoice and praise God that as he calls us to repentance, he calls us to real hope. I will always uh, admire my father-in-law's love for my wife. She was abandoned by a selfish father when she was a teenager. And this man took her in as a as a stranger and made her his very own <laughs> and today wherever she is and whatever she needs he would drop everything and be there <laughs> why is that because his Adamic heart has been renewed by the power of Jesus Christ and that's where our hope for family relationships lie my own father now in his 70s, been faithful and loving and caring for me over the years, and now moving closer to the Lord and closer to the church. And I have good hopes before God that he will one day make a profession and join in the faith with me and my children. One of the families in our church has a multi-generational respect for great-grandpa 
that is edifying to everybody who knows the family as the son and the granddaughters and the grandsons, great-grandsons, all share in caring for this 89-year-old patriarch who still is willing to acknowledge publicly in Thanksgiving services how much he rejoices in God's love to him through his family. There's hope because God's word is true. And whatever condition your family relationships are in, and I so know some of them are bad, and some of them are wonderfully good, but our hope cannot finally be upon our wisdom as parents or our obedience as children, but it can only rest in the fact that more than anything else, we love the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. And whatever he expects from us as parents or children, by his grace, we will do it, give it, we will do it. May that be our hope as fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, within the families that God has given to us. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the one who ordained the family. You were the one who promised in the covenant to be a God to us and to our children after us throughout our generations. To you belongs the glory. But to us, O oh God, confusion of face, because our parental sins have set us off against our children as adversaries, even as we conduct the important work of nurturing and disciplining them in the way of faith. And our childish sins have set us over against our parents as we have been wise in our own eyes and listened to alien voices that don't even know us, let alone love us, and would lead us into destruction with themselves. O oh God, we plead with you to have mercy upon us. Show us our sins in the light of your covenant mercies and help us to see again that we don't have to stare across a dark highway to a shining house that will be forever calling us but totally unapproachable because there is for us an atonement in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We are not worthy, O Lord, but you are gracious and that is finally our hope and our thanksgiving. Amen. Let's close by singing one hymn together, if you will. It's number 356. It's in the section of our hymnal for communion hymns, but I think it's a wonderful hymn for repentant members of the family of God who taste afresh the mercy and the grace of our Savior. Not worthy, Lord, to gather up the crumbs, 356. And let's sing this prayerfully as we close our meeting tonight. <laughs>